This is Mike Elgin Radio for Monday, November 4th, 2019. My current column for Insider Pro, which I encourage you to subscribe to if you have to know all about technology for a living, is about haptics. Haptics is uh, a really underappreciated realm of technology, in part because the current state of the art is pretty boring, unless you're a video gamer. If you play, you know, Call of Duty on Xbox, then you know that the controller haptics, the rumbling of the explosions and all that kind of stuff, is uh, it, it's really, it's pretty good. It really enhances the game. But if you're a smartphone user, you probably know something just kind of goes bzz, zaps you when you're typing letters or when you are getting a phone call and you have it turned off, it vibrates. It's pretty boring stuff. The thing about haptics is that the vibrations and other things that affect the sense of touch are software controlled. And therefore, there's an enormous amount of possibility around this. And we're really going to need good haptics in the future because we're entering a world of virtual stuff for, uh, and augmented stuff. So augmented and virtual reality involves virtual objects that you can see, maybe you can hear, but haptics will give them a sense of touch as well. And what's happening in the world of haptics is really, really exciting. One of the most innovative companies in haptics, ironically, is Apple, which has a bunch of patents that are really great. For example, they have a patent for its pencil that is essentially a ballpoint pencil. And the ball isn't there to distribute ink to the paper. It's there to either roll smoothly or have certain amounts of resistance. And this is controlled by a magnetic fluid that's on the other side of the rolling ball. And the, the patent that they have suggest that future iPads may have a magnetic grid that governs what happens with this magnetic fluid. And the end result will be that it, you can select different types of paper, for example, and if you p select drawing paper, the magnetic fluid will cause resistance, making it feel like paper. Right now, if you use a, which I do, I use a, an Apple pencil with my iPad, I love it, but it doesn't feel like paper because the pen just slides across the glass so easily. It just slides across and it doesn't give you that little bit of resistance that happens when you're using a pencil on some like textured paper, for example. This technology that Apple's working on would actually do that. And in fact, as you run your pencil across the, the glass, different objects could be registered differently. And so this magnetic thing would just turn on and turn off in an instant changing the resistance of the pen. Very cool stuff. Really cool idea. I don't know if it would actually work, but it's a great idea. They're also um, working on all kinds of uh, two-screen technology ideas. Uh, Microsoft, of course, recently announced the Surface Duo, which is like a phone-type thing that will uh, run Android instead of Windows 10. It won't ship till next year, like literally a year away, and everyone's going, well, why? You know, what, what, why does it take them that long? They've obviously been working on this idea for years. And I think one of the reasons may be that they may be working on advanced haptics. This is important if you have a two-screen device of any kind, 
because if you put it into laptop mode where you're typing on one screen and using the other screen as a screen, then you want haptics to help you with the virtual keyboard. Because right now it's very unsatisfying to use a virtual keyboard. You type on it and it's just you don't know where the keys are, you can't feel them. Haptics will enable us to feel where the keys are and feel when we press the keys in a much more sophisticated way than a little zap or a little buzz. It will feel like a, you know, advanced haptics will give us a real click, like there's, it, it will feel like the, the keys are actually giving under the weight of our fingers, which would be very cool. Another Apple patent would use haptics. One of the coolest products that I've heard about in the world of haptics is a full body haptic suit as in Ready Player One, called the Tesla Suit. It's made by a company called VR Electronics. And you put this suit on and it simulates all kinds of weird haptic experiences. So for example, it can simulate wind on your skin. It can simulate hot and cold temperatures. Uh, really fascinating thing. One of the most fascinating things that it will actually deliver electrical impulses to your muscles. And the result of this is that not only would you be able to feel virtual objects and virtual reality, but they would actually have weight because as you pick up some virtual object, the haptics will register in your fingers that you are pressing against something. And then as you lift it, it will zap the muscles in your arms so that it feels heavy. How amazing is that? I mean, this is like really cool stuff. And this thing exists already in, in limited, uh, you know, it's not that easy to buy. They, they're targeting it at uh, enterprises, not uh, VR gamers, uh, primarily enterprises. A lot of this um, haptics technology, uh, virtual, you know, haptics, virtual reality gloves and things like that are being targeted at enterprises and big organizations simply because they have the money. You know, if you're a VR gamer, you might think, wow, I want one of these suits, that'd be so much fun, but it'll cost, you know, it'll cost a couple thousand dollars, right? And what are you gonna use it with? Like what game supports VR suits right now? So it's really headed for enterprises, military, uh, for training and that sort of thing. But still the technology is so, so cool. Ultimately, the thing to really understand about haptics is that it's being completely revolutionized by new technology. AI is being applied to it. All kinds of different technologies are being applied to haptics to make it where virtual objects, whether it's augmented reality or virtual reality, where we'll be able to feel these virtual objects. And that's what's really interesting about it. If you think about anything you might want to do in the real life, in, in the real world, if you want to fix something or you want to ride a bicycle or you want to, to make something out of wood or whatever, if we're going to simulate real world activities in the virtual world, we have to have a sense of touch. We have to feel what we're doing. Otherwise, we're not going to be able to do it. Remote surgery, for example, uh, controlling a, ro a remote robot arm in a dangerous environment. The ability to do all those things depends on our ability to feel these virtual things so that not only we believe them, but, but, the, but the feeling 
that we get back, that the, the tactile sensation is actually information that we need in order to do things. And so it's pretty exciting, and we'll be looking for these things uh, coming out um, first with the enterprise, ultimately for consumers, where we're going to actually be able to feel the virtual world. I don't know about you, but I'm something of an information and knowledge junkie. I have to know stuff. Uh, I can't leave a question unanswered. I need to, I feel this compulsive need to learn uh, as much as I can. And what I've discovered over the years is that the limiting factor uh, in terms of how much I can learn and how clearly I can think about things uh, is twofold. The first is time. You know, you, you could read all the, all the books in the world if you had enough time, but, but our time is very limited. We're all very busy. And the second limiting factor is, I guess, what you could call information overload. It's like you just can't take in anymore. So after I read uh, 100 articles, uh, when I go for that 101st article, I'm just like, okay, I'm not, I'm not really, I can't, you know, your mind starts rebelling against the act of learning. And that's a kind of information overload. So I think one of the best tricks that I have uh, uh, stumbled across or figured out uh, is that to deal with this information overload thing, it helps to break up what it is that's giving you overload. So the intake of information is one of those things, but it's a necessary one because in order for you to learn, you have to take in information. But there are all kinds of other things. So for example, have you ever tried to concentrate on something, either by, through working or reading or something like that, and people keep interrupting you or the world keeps interrupting you and you have to shift from like being immersed in the content to somebody wants your attention for some other thing, and then you go back to the content and you're like, where was I, what was I? And, and that shift from one mode to another mode is exhausting to the brain, like to your brain is like, whoa. I mean, it's like, it takes a lot of work for your mind to do that kind of task switching. Another one is that when you're going from article to article to article, surfing the internet, just like a, the typical, you know, you, uh, uh, typical act of going through and looking, reading this article, maybe following a link from that article to another article. What's happening is your brain is doing another kind of shifting because every website not only is cluttered with visual noise, but it's a different kind of visual noise from the last one. So the typography is different, the, the letters are different sizes, the, the, the placement of the content you're trying to, to read or consume is in a different place. Everything about it is different. And you go from article to article to article to article, your brain is actually expending an enormous amount of energy in that shift, the shifting context, uh, the visual noise uh, as it changes, uh, tasks your brain a, a lot. The decision-making process about what to read, what not to read is another taxing element. And so what does all this tell us about how to conserve mental energy and apply it only to the intake of knowledge? What I've discovered is that breaking up tasks and doing different tasks at different times is an enormous energy saver when it comes to mental energy. 
And so what I tend to do is that when I'm hunting for information, which I have a process for doing that, I write about specific topics and I, I go through hundreds of websites and articles and things like that every single day. What I found is that the hunting process, I only do hunting when, I, when I'm hunting for information. I hunt and as soon as I found it, I click a button on my browser and it goes into Instapaper. There are lots of different Instapaper-like products out there. The browsers themselves have such features built in. But the, the, the most important thing is that you separate the hunting from the reading or the consuming of content. The biggest benefit, I think, to Instapaper is that it strips out all the clutter. There's no, all the typography is the same. The, there, there's no web layout. It just grabs the article itself and maybe a few pictures in that, from that article and it puts them in a single place. And then later, when I'm in learning mode, I just go from article to article to article. I'm not making decisions about what to read. That has already been done. I'm not task switching uh, between different visual styles of, of websites. And I make sure that I'm in a situation where I am unlikely to be interrupted a lot. And so I can expend almost all of the mental energy that I have on learning. And this is my best tip for how to, oh, and the other part of that tip is that when you are in learning mode, disconnect from the internet. Don't let the internet interrupt you. Don't let notifications interrupt you. Don't let the knowledge that Twitter is one click away or YouTube is just one click away interrupt you. Turn off the internet. The knowledge that the internet is turned off is actually a great way to focus better. So the advice I give to writers who also have to read a lot is never read or write while connected to the internet. So that's my best tip for how to learn more and think more clearly. Manage your mental energy by separating the hunting from the learning. A funny thing happened to me on Twitter in the last couple of days. Uh, when we were in Oaxaca, Amira came back to our apartment where I was working and she brought me a bag of orange juice. And I always got a kick out of this whenever I go to some places in Latin America, in Central America mostly is where I've seen this, but it's also something that exists in Mexico, uh, where they give you a beverage in a bag and they have a straw in it. So you drink it out of the bag. In other cases, they tie a knot around the beverage. And then when you want to drink it, you basically bite a piece of it and you suckle at it like, like you're breastfeeding or something. Anyway, they do this um, all over the world, but I always get a kick out of it. I thought it was cool. I took a picture of it, posted it on Twitter, and, uh, and I said one of the fun things about some Latin American countries is that you can buy drinks in a bag. And I said parenthetically that this is OJ in Oaxaca. Well, this uh, went radically viral, uh, especially in Asia. Uh, at, the, at the moment when I'm recording this on Monday morning, this tweet, this inane tweet, had 1,045,564 impressions and 1,372,442 total engagements. Mostly, it was lots and lots of 
Asians in Malaysia, Indonesia, and really all over the world, but, but, but especially in, in that part of Asia, doing one of two things. One where they were like, well, this is how it is in, in where we are, and then they would show a picture of something in a bag. In one case, it was Starbucks in a bag. In another case, it was like beer. Somebody posted a picture of beer in a bag. They sell beer in a bag in China and other places. Uh, and the other one were pe people essentially laughing at me because I was commenting on what an interesting and thing this is, or fun. I, I said it was fun. Um, but in many, many countries, that it's almost the only way you get beverages is in a bag. It's super common. Uh, but it was just fascinating to see this blow up. And, um, you know, you never know um, what's going to be uh, radically viral. I mean, there's no benefit to me for this being blo uh, blowing up like this. It's kind of annoying, actually, now, because when I look at my notifications in Twitter, uh, they're coming in uh, three, four, five, six new notifications, even now, per second. And so to get to notifications about other posts that I made is, is I have to filter through all of this orange juice in a bag fodder. But anyways, thought it was really fascinating. Orange juice in a bag. Who knew? I want to buy a drone, but I don't want to spend a fortune and I don't want a big bulky thing that has to have its own case. And so I was really interested when DJI came up with their new mini drone. They, uh, don't even call it a drone. Uh, and I was just looking at some of the reviews and I was thinking, ah, it looks pretty great. But then I saw Casey Neistat's review. And he pointed out something that I thought was pretty funny. The FAA recently requires even consumers to register their, their drones and, and their drones. Uh, and, and, and they kind of regulate it and they basically say, well, if you have a drone, you have to, you have to register it and you, have to do, you can't fly it here or there or the other place. And you know, you, all this, these new rules around drones and people are kind of, some people feel a little irked about it. It's probably a good thing for public safety and for the safety of others. Um, but what's interesting about the new DJI drone is that it knows that the FAA's definition of a drone that has to be registered and is falls under certain regulations is has to be over 250 grams. That's really light. 250 grams is very, very, very light. So the DJI drone is 249 grams. They deliberately made a drone that doesn't have to be registered. They print 249 grams on the drone itself so that if somebody challenges you in the park saying you're not supposed to be flying that here, you say, look at this drone. It's 249 grams. The limit says 250 grams. Anyway, fascinating move by DJI. And I am almost certainly gonna get one. My wife and I do a number of different businesses. One of hers, my favorite, <laughs> is the gastronomic experiences. And uh, we're gonna be doing the Mexico City experience starting tomorrow. And the reason it's my favorite is because I get to eat amazing food and drink amazing beverages with amazing people for like six days. 
And it's the closest thing I get to having like a nonstop party slash vacation slash wonderful time with no actual work involved on my part. My wife is working very hard, but I, but I'm mostly just having a great time and taking pictures and stuff like that. So tell me about the gastro. My officer, tell me about the gastronomic experiences. What's the deal with gastronomic experiences generally, not Mexico City experiences specifically? Um, well, it's it's really an excuse to have fun and forget about all of our problems. Everybody has problems. <laughs> so it's, it's, it's all about cultivating joy. And I just find the most awesome people that every region has, and the most awesome food, and we try to do a deep immersion in the local culture. I love how this started, too, because basically... We le- we've been living around the world for about 13, coming up on 14 years, with the exception of the two years that I worked at TWIT, where we lived in Sonoma County and didn't live abroad. But we've been mostly living abroad and traveling a lot. And, um, and you always have this ability and, and intuition and, uh, and um, impulse, really, to find, like, really interesting people doing really interesting food things. And sometimes it's innovation. Sometimes it's carrying on traditions. But you always just befriend all these winemakers and people who do really great stuff. And then we would get to know them, hang out with them. We would take a bunch of pictures, post the pictures on Google+. Plus. Everybody remembers Google+. Plus. And become and, lifelong, lifelong friends with them. Oh, yeah, absolutely. But what, what, the way, how this began was people would ask us, how do you find these places? And the only answer is you got to live somewhere for six months and spend almost all of your time exploring and stuff like that. So that's, that wasn't satisfying to people who were... And who be were, obsessed with food. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, but, it's, but it's not something you can just do on a vacation for a week or whatever. And then the second thing people would always say is, man, that looks so amazing. I wish I could join you. And at some point you just said, well, maybe they can join us. Well, what I remember is you, you, had, you were still working on your book. You were about to publish it. And um, this is before Airbnb came up with their experiences. Gastronomad, yes. the art of living everywhere and eating everything, fourteen ninety nine on Amazon.com. <laughs> so uh, people would say, you know, wish we could join you. But really, that's what it was. We, we uh, have uh, really close friends all over the world as a result of um, over the years meeting them and then meeting them again and again and again because we had such good time with them. Mm-hmm. And people would always say to us, uh, you readers mostly, um, you know, when we would blog, wish we could be there, that looks so amazing, that sounds fantastic. And we would do these amazing gatherings, dinner, you know, eight-hour dinners, uh, beautiful dinners with musicians and uh, a chef, usually a friend would be the chef, making this elaborate dinner somewhere in France or in Barcelona and Italy, those are the places where we really have hung out the most, um, in even Morocco. And so at some point it occurred to me, you know what? People say they want to be with us when we do these things. Why not? And so you take all the things you've discovered. For example, you know, right now we do 
five, six. Uh, well, I guess we're just adding another one, so we're doing six, right? So. Yes, a little secret. We actually seven because we're the, next year we're doing seven locations. That's right. So. So you're going to reveal this on Mike Elgin Radio because this is the number one publication for. Uh, for ex exactly. So where so where are where are the two new locations? Uh, uh, well, one will be in Greece, and the other one in Oaxaca. Which we went uh, last week. So the other five that we've been doing experiences at are in Barcelona, the Prosecco Hills of Italy, Provence in France, Mexico City, where we are right now, and the other one is Morocco, the Morocco experience. The Morocco experience is really amazing because it's two weeks instead of six days. We do the whole country, and we do all the most awesome sites, and we meet with all of our friends there. And what? the thing about the experience that's so great is that when you come and you meet with our friends, you become friends with yeah. them for life. Yeah. And it's and again, you come into the culture. You don't come as an outsider. You come as an insider from the beginning because our friends make you their friends immediately. You know, it's funny uh, because, you know, I, I, most people's best friends were made in high school, maybe college or something like that. But I, I've made more friends. You and I have made more friends in the last, well... Decade. Decade, but really the, the experience is really intensified because in addition to the friends we made in the country, the, the people who do the experiences become our really right. good friends. Yes. And so. And they become friends. Everybody that attends the experiences become these really uh, lifelong friends also, like these really deep friendships that are so unusual. It, it's almost what I always say is, is uh, soulmates uh, that are your friends. And, and somehow the experience attracts all this really wonderful people that are obsessed with food and wine and are generally really warm and 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 uh just wonderful generous kind people and we truly become uh instant friends and it's like we've known each other all of our lives and so then we always get some pictures of our friends that we make during the experience getting together in their different cities or when one travels to another city where the other one lives and they get together and they send us pictures of them having dinner and toasting and it's just so fantastic. And we get together with them as well. We just right. we just actually went traveling around um, uh, Greece with, yes. with some people we met or great friends now uh, for, for, for the during, Barcelona experience. During the very first experience yeah. we ever had right. a few years ago. Uh, and that was fantastic. And literally everyone who did that first Barcelona experience, and it was, it was kind of a larger group, um, literally every single one of them has done additional gastronomic experiences. But we'll get into all that later. Let's talk about specifically about the Mexico City experience, which begins tomorrow. Um, what are we doing? What, what fun and why delightful thing? Why are you asking me for specifics? You know that this is a surprise. <laughs> Everything's a surprise. kept a secret. Everything is a secret. It's part of the tradition. Yeah. Um, but generally, we're going to yes. eat food yes. and we're going to drink wine. What else? Well, but the <laughs> cool thing about the experiences also that's so unique is that they're all completely exclusive. This is not something that you can come as a tourist and, and do the same thing that we're doing because everything that we do is completely a one-time thing just for us with our friends uh so it's really you just come hang out with us as we're doing our thing mm -hmm. which is we love to have fun we yeah. love to eat we love to drink and we love to learn about all the traditions all the culture so you don't come and superficially get into things here you yeah. really dive deep into the the culture here and you learn while you have fun 
One of the things that I think is funny about it, uh, I get a kick out of it, and we're not trying to make people envious or whatever, but there's al there are always these moments where you see tourists, like sometimes on the other side of the glass window or sometimes we encounter them. We try to avoid them. But they look at us like, why do they get to do that? And it's like it happens pretty much every day during the experiences because, again, we always do these things that nobody else gets to do in places nobody else gets to do them. Um, anyway, so yes. what, what else can you tell us without revealing well, all the secrets about we, my, Mexico we City? Go to, we go to, the, of course, the best restaurants in the city. I mean, truly, the very best, the sort of the best food. We, we not only, uh, and I hope this doesn't give anything away, we not only go to a couple of the restaurants that everybody thinks are the best and in fact are, we also go to some, some restaurants that are also among the best and nobody people, ne nobody's that. heard about them. And you have a, a way, almost every experience, we go to places that are newish, like a month old or two months old, and that have not been discovered but will be discovered possibly ruined by the t by by all the you know the instagrammers and the and the and the tourists but um it's always new stuff yes and well but what makes it special is that um because i'm so passionate about food uh obsessed obsessed really and i always confess this to people because i'm generally a very happy person and always having fun and you know genuinely so, I mean, you and I, just the two of us, have a lot of fun all the time, and yeah. we laugh all the time. Um, but the only time um, something makes me unhappy is when we have a bad meal. Right. Right. And we I start to panic because, I, like, if we're having a bad dinner, I'm like, oh, my God, this is going to be a long night. <laughs> and we have had them. Where we've gone to Michelin star restaurants in France, in Barcelona, in Italy, in Mexico. Well, Mexico City, there's no Michelin star, but there is the 50 world's best restaurants um and oh my god it just that just makes me so unhappy it and was really angry it was really hilarious we went to a, a really exclusive michelin star restaurant in barcelona recently um a couple months ago i think yeah. three months and and you 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 have no you like the, the razzle dazzle of amazing presentation and amazing plating and expensive uh, surroundings and 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 fancy waiters. Now, you don't give a shit about any of that no, stuff. Like right. you are into what does the food taste like, what is the quality of the food, yes. and you sat there the entire time going, "Oh, this is garbage." I mean, this is this was an exquisitely presented yes. plates of a mini course meal, yes. where everything was just. They had this all these chefs. They had basically more chefs than people in the restaurant. Yeah. And you, and the whole time you're like, oh, this is terrible. This is like oversalted, and they they, they didn't cook this right, and blah 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 blah. Well, you're you're really an insufferable snob about one, food. One of them, I literally wanted to spit out. It was so bad. It was salty. It had no flavor. <laughs> it was really bizarre. It's the weirdest. But it had foam. Thing I've ever eaten. Anyway, but but the opposite of that is right. that when I meet a brilliant chef and visionary and someone that's just truly talented and really honors the food and yeah. the traditions of the culture because that's what I'm looking for and I'm looking for real food that I can taste right. the food and where it comes from and the ingredients mm -hmm. uh, and all together just form this beautiful harmony of flavors and 
and it just makes you feel like you've gone to heaven. Like those tamales we found in Oaxaca from that tamale lady. Exactly. We just ate the last one last night. They're so delicious, and it's very simple. Like, it's a lady working in a, a, a market that's for locals, and she's got a giant pot of steaming tamales and a, you know, a crowd of locals every all day, every day. Yes. And and her tamales were fantastic. And you didn't think you'd like her mole uh, tamales. Because uh, yes, and I loved them. I love. She makes like eight different kinds of tamales every day, mm. and they're just exquisite. And in fact, before we took our flight, I went and bought eight of them to bring to Mexico City with us. Yeah. And we just finished eating the last two last night. Anyway, I'm super excited about the about the Mexico City experience. And, um, you know, again, it starts tomorrow. You know, if, and, and I'll probably lay but down... Just to, give, just to give a little yeah. bit more information. So, you know, we, we, we gather with brilliant chefs. We they, When we go to restaurants, they give us this very personal thing uh they go above and beyond for us uh and that's some of the things that the other diners might see that this group is getting a special uh treatment and and in fact we do um that's part of the deal uh, you know we 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 form these friendships with the chefs and mm-hmm. um they understand we have a deep appreciation for the food the culture and so they go the extra length they go the extra mile for well chefs for winemakers us. cheesemakers yes. uh blessed be the cheesemakers right. um yes. all kinds of and, of, we talk, and we learn from the top expert top most experts in every region so you know we're gonna be learning about coffee about yeah. cacao, about chilies from the top experts. I mean, these are the people that are doing the interviews for CNN and being asked to talk at the big food conferences and that kind of thing. Why, why are your, it seems like 60% of your friends are like magnificent food Our visionaries. Friends. Yeah, well, you know, you're the, you're the social butterfly. My idea of being a social butterfly is being by myself in a room and going on Twitter, but that's, that, not, true. that's not true. So, for example, the, the, the coffee guy who's going to be um, leading our coffee tasting, and he, we do like high-end stuff, so it's like a yes. professional coffee tasting, yes. teaches us how to do it, and then we do well, it. Well, you, you learn to taste, and we're giving a lot away here, but we learn to taste like uh, judges. <clears throat> Like, right. you know, you become like coffee connoisseurs, but experts. Yes. You learn to taste coffee like, like the way judges do. We, we become very judgmental. Yes. And, but, the other, but the point I was going to make is, is that the guy who's leading this owns the five best coffee places in Mexico City. There are a lot of great me- yeah. coffee places in Mexico City, not, to, not to mention 100 Starbucks. Yeah, specialty hipster yes. joints. But then, as soon as the experience is over, we're going to go with him into the mountains and go hang out. Just because he's our friend. Um, yeah, meet the coffee farmers right. uh, and some of his friends because yeah. he worked in coffee farms for a long time, which is how he became so knowledgeable. I'm kind of panicking about it because I don't think they have any internet or anything, and I don't even think they speak Spanish up there, right? They speak Indian languages or something. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, I don't know. I don't know what we're gonna do. He's he's excited <laughs> about it. He's gonna take us, and I'll, we'll we'll actually be talking to him after the experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, for Mike Elgin Radio, because I'm sure that we have a, he'll have a lot to say, and you know we'll be He's talking to some interesting He's people. Wonderful. Yeah. So anyway, that, that's the Mexico City experience, and and we'll probably I'll probably do some recording uh, for ver- at various moments. I hope. So next week I'll probably be talking about um, the experience, and uh, anyway, so I'm very excited. Me too. Super excited. <laughs> When we were in uh, Oaxaca last week, we were out and about and got caught up in 
the unbridled enthusiasm of the locals. We got caught in the rain, and we ended up in a mezcal joint talking about getting caught in the rain uh, many years ago. Anyway, enjoy. So we had dinner, and we were walking down the street, minding our own business, when, lo and behold, there was a really good marching band, a bunch of young kids playing band instruments. A bunch of families and a whole bunch of people gathered around. So we sort of just walked down the middle of the street and people just basically grabbed our arms to join them. So we got dragged into this thing and got swept up in the moment of, of uh, what you, unbridled enthusiasm, I guess you'd call it. And uh, we ended up in this plaza between two churches. Half a mile, they're blocking. I mean, it's completely great in traffic everywhere, but yeah. everyone's stopping for the parade. And it's just music, people having fun, dancing, and drinking mezcal from the bottle. If I'm honest, there are some intoxicated individuals present, but... And now we're in a plaza between yeah. two churches, beautiful churches, everyone is just dancing and having fun. And it's all spectacularly pointless in a good way. So... Anyway, here we are. We don't know why it's happening. And I was starting to rain, so I think we better make our way home. All right, fine. So, <laughs> what just happened? <laughs> so we got soaking wet. I mean, literally, it's torrential rain, and we got caught in the rain. I, I'm, like, so... I'm like, I'm like, I'm as wet as if I jumped in a yeah. swimming pool. Yes, absolutely, I am too. And so we we were trying to find this mezcal place because we knew it was open and stuff like that. Just pretty late. Because it's still pouring rain, right. and we still have half a mile to walk home. You you had noticed it. I saw it. Yes. And I wasn't sure that I saw it. It might have been a, a, a uh, I thought it might have been a, like a mirage or something. But alas, we found it and we jumped in and you burst through the door and said, those mezcalas before. So. <laughs> and so here we are about to happen. And, and all these dry people were staring at us. <laughs> Cheers. You know how dry people are. So you're just telling me that everybody thought you were weird when you were a little girl? Yes, because I used to love getting soaked by the rain. I deliberately would go outside and take walks in the rain. The torrential downpour we just experienced is like something that I've only experienced in Honduras. When we were, dri we were driving years ago between Honduras and El Salvador, and it, 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 it dropped like six inches in like half an hour. It's, it's like it's, it's literally raining buckets yeah. at a time. And it's not cold. No, it's not cold. It's nice and warm. The temperature is perfect. Temperature and the temperature of the water is not cool at all. So it's just so nice. So when we were in that other one, we're going swimming, except the water comes to you. It comes to you. You don't have to go to the water. When we, last time I experienced something like this, we were driving between El Salvador and Honduras. We were lost. Yes. We were in the jungle, basically. Yes. And you got out to ask somebody uh, directions because we were just like in the middle of a jungle or something. You saw a house and you ran out. You were barefoot, right? In the middle right? of a forest. Yes, it, yes, because it was, there were literally like rivers of water all around us. And I remember you running through like a foot of water. Yes. Yeah, and I got out and there was no one at the house. Oh, yes, there was. And then he said, there's no turning around because all the train, all the, all the bridges have been lost. And they're basically mud bridges, essentially, and, yeah. and they were all washed away. So we had to go forward into the jungle deeper. And it turns out that 
we made a run for it because it was basically a matter of life and death. We were in the jungle where there were a lot of gorillas at the time. It was not safe. By gorilla, you don't mean like giant not primates. Gorillas, you mean like they, they weren't gorillas. They were former gorillas who turned to crime. Yes. Uh, FMLN. FMLN from El Salvador in the jungle. And so we were in really terrible territory. That was not a place to be. And so we decided that um, you will make a run for it in the car. I got out of the car. That's to cross that last bridge. And as you crossed over the bridge, the bridge just completely crumbled. And we have video of all this yeah. somewhere. Where, where's that video? It's, we have it someplace. Yeah. But yes, that was the crazy, one of the craziest things we ever done. Anyway, the rain is nice. If you love Mike Elgin Radio, please rate and review it wherever you're getting your podcasts. And if you don't love it, never mind. Thanks for listening.